thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. And as I listened back to last week's podcast and reflected on a few comments that I get from listeners from time to time, I love hearing from you, is the need to follow up on some of the things that I said last week, because I have listeners who will say, sometimes I need to listen to what you say a couple of times, or I need to ponder over what you've said. And I know for some, what I cover is beyond their normal parameters for thinking about theology and law and government, and it's, and it's new. And I just want to say to those of you who uh, sometimes are in that position, I get you. I understand you. For example, the last couple of weeks, I've been looking at some sections in Abraham Kuyper's lectures to the students at Princeton Seminary in 1898. Now, I first read that book, oh, I don't know, at least 15 years ago, I would think, maybe longer than that. And I, I see things in what he says that I at the time didn't understand that all of a sudden makes sense and I I draw connections that at the time I first read it the first two or three times I read it I just couldn't connect so keep hanging in there keep hanging in there with me on this and so I want to go back to a few of the things that I said last week that if you continued to think about them you might have thought well wait a minute I'm not sure there's a consistency here something that's said or there was something you said David, that I didn't quite follow, didn't get, and that's easy to do. We can all assume that the person we're talking to uh, understands something that we're talking about as well as we do, and, you know, that they don't. And they're too polite to not just say, that That doesn't make any sense to me at all. Would you stop and repeat that? And, of course, on a podcast like this, you can't do that. So let me pick up on a couple of things where, as I listened, I thought, okay, where might I have said, hmm, that doesn't sound quite right, or something's missing there, or explain that further. So that's what I'm going to do today, and I'll try to get to as much as I can. But one of the things that I quoted Kuiper as saying is that subjective theology tends to go away. Egoistic theology. Theology directed towards the needs of man for protection from the cosmos, like in the pagan cultures. How do I how do I appease the storms, the lightning, the winters, you know, bring forth the rains and the drought uh, to other needs as society develops and we need material possessions. Uh, we need health uh, care and so on and so forth. And so he said, in those times when the needs of our ego are met, religion tends to fall away. And many might say today, well, David, if that's true, looking at what's going on with some of the classes within our culture, the poor, the people being hurt terribly by inflation, whose towns are being overrun by illegal immigrants, where crime rampages and the police don't even want to go anymore, why are they not now calling out and crying out to God? Why isn't there a reformation that springs out of this? Now, undoubtedly, some of those people are, in fact, doing that. But as a whole, in our nation, 
We're not doing that. If we are, we may be doing it for egotistical or subjective reasons rather than for the objective reason of seeing the glory of God manifested. And that is a subjective repentance, not godly repentance, a repentance towards God. It's a repentance towards the consequences of turning away from God, but not turning away from God in and of itself. So why, we might ask, has there not been a more universal crying out to God that Kuiper says tends to happen when people find themselves hard-pressed by their circumstances? Well, here's what he says. The most alarming feature of the present situation, now again, he's speaking in 1898, and things are far worse now than they were then uh, in terms of matters of poverty, the division of classes. We didn't have doctors saying it was good health care to remove a young girl's breasts, right? He said, is the lamentable absence of that receptivity to God in our diseased organism, which is indispensable to the effecting of a cure. Now, let me read that statement again without me interrupting it. The most alarming feature of his current time of the present situation is the lamentable absence of that receptivity in our diseased organ, which is indispensable to the effecting of a cure. In other words, there's something so diseased in the organism of our social life, our, our civil life, our government structures, our understanding of law that is so diseased that, that a cure isn't effective anymore. And here's what he says. In the Greco-Roman world, such receptivity did exist. The hearts opened spontaneously to receive the truth. And of course, we know in those worlds, they had gods. We read about that on Mars Hill, right? They even had an altar to the unknown God in case they had missed one. So talk of God was not nonsensical. He continues, to an even stronger degree, this receptivity existed in the age of Reformation, when large masses cried out for the gospel. Now, why was there such a receptivity then? Because you had the, the Holy Roman Empire. Christianity, under the auspices of the Catholic Church, existed throughout all of Europe, okay? So, so when someone came along with it said, we're saved by the work of Jesus Christ that is not dependent upon a second mediation by the church but comes immediately from the work of the Father by the Holy Spirit through the atonement made by Jesus on the individual, well, there was a receptivity to it. I, I don't have to pay indulgences. I don't, I don't have to go through rituals to have a clean conscience before God. So, so there was a receptivity there too. He says, then, as now, the body suffered from anemia and blood poisoning even had set in, but there was no aversion to the only effectual antidote. So he's saying, now there's an aversion to the antidote. Now it is precisely this, this aversion, that distinguishes our modern decadence from the two preceding ones, that with the masses the receptivity for the gospel is on the decrease, whilst with the scientists the positive aversion to it is on the increase. Now, he keeps talking about it, and we're going to get to the what the it is, but let me read that again. It, we need to define that, 
is precisely this that distinguishes our modern decadence from the two preceding ones, the Greco-Roman world and the time of the Reformation within Christendom and the Holy Roman Empire. That with the masses, the receptivity for the gospel is on the decrease now, while with the scientists, the positive aversion to it is on the increase. Now, ultimately, friends, what he's talking about here is we've lost our Christian cosmology, our understanding of who God is, the relationship of God to the creation, and the God-given meaning and purpose of what he created. We've lost that because science has reduced everything down to mechanistic, mechanical formula. So he goes on. The invitation to bow the knee before Christ. See, that was what was being offered at the time of the Greco-Roman world. That's what Paul was doing on Mars Hill. That's what was happening during the Reformation, to bow the knee before Christ, as opposed to the Pope or, or the church as an institution, as a legal institution bearing a sword, okay? He said it's met now so often with a shrug of the shoulders, if not with the sarcastic rejoinder, fit for children and old women, not for us men. The modern philosophy which gains the day considers itself in ever-increasing measure as having outgrown Christianity. So my friends, we're speaking into a new epoch of time here that I would call even pre-pagan. That's a little different way of looking at it. We, we talk about post-Christian culture, but at least in a pagan culture, you could talk about God. And it didn't seem childish or stupid. We're in a pre-pagan culture. Now, Kuiper goes on to say, the first question that must be answered is what has brought us to this place? A question deriving its paramount importance from the fact that only a correct diagnosis can lead to effective treatment. So what brought us to this place where we shrug our shoulders and say, uh, we're men of science today, we're men of reason and enlightenment, and, and, you know, I covered some of that last week with the mention of Descartes, who comes along in the 1600s during the English Reformation and the struggle between the Catholic Church and the Protestants. And then you had Kant, and then you had Schleiermacher. But here's how Kuiper sums it up. Historically, he says, the cause of the evil is found in nothing else than in the spiritual denigration which marked the close of the preceding century. Now that would have been the late 1700s because he's speaking in the late 1800s. And who did I say issued a, a fundamentally important book? It was Schleimacher on religion, speeches to the cultured despisers that rooted religion in our sense of dependence, an emotive sense rather than anything objective outside of us. Here's what Kuiper then says. The proposal was then made by deistic and atheistic philosophers. That's important. So you have the atheist who says there is no God. You have the deist who said, yes, there is a God, but he's really detached from his creation. Not, not in the sense of the creator-creature distinction of the Bible, but one who made the world and then so removed himself from it as to, to not be relevant to it. That's sort of the Kantian idea, okay? 
That's the idea that, well, we know there must be a God because there's certain moral imperatives that are universal, and that implies there's a universal authority giver, uh, lawmaker, moral person, and that's, that's God. And so that's essentially a deistic view of things. And he says, so this, he said, came to England, but afterwards chiefly in France on the part of the encyclopedias to place the whole of life on a new basis. This is where I'm talking about cosmology. Turned upside down the existing order of affairs and arranged a new world on the assumption that human nature continues in its uncorrupted state. Now that's essentially evolution. It's pantheism. It obliterates the fall. It is a repudiation of the biblical cosmology about the way the world is ordered and why it is the way it is. He continues, it was found in the Great Revolution of 1789. Of course, that's the French Revolution. And here's what he says about it. The French Revolution loosened and entirely unfastened, and I'm inserting here the description of what it is he's referring to, which you would have gotten if you'd read the whole chapter in the whole book, but the organic, social, and ethical ties. Now, with that, let me go back and read it again. The French Revolution loosened and entirely unfastened all organic, social, and ethical ties. Things that tie us to the history that's come before us and the people that come before us, that tie man to woman, that tie parent to child, that create this nuclear organic family. He said all of those ties were loosened. Detaching life not merely from the church, which that's part of what the French Revolution was doing. It was, it was doing in part what the Reformation did. It detached the church from the whole of society so that the church wasn't, in a sense, the only institution under which all things could exist and be formed. It was the church as a body of people, not as a hierarchical institution having canonical laws, okay? I hope that makes sense. If not, maybe listen to it again. But he says, so, so the French Revolution did detach life in a freeing way from the society, from the culture. It, it lost how the, the Reformation then handled law and society and human institutions but there was still a detachment. And he says, but they also loose themselves from God's ordinances, even from God himself. See, that's what deism does, that's what atheism does, and to be honest, friends, that's what subjective theology tends toward because it leads to a Gnosticism that separates the secular and the sacred. He goes on, man as such, with this loosening of ties, each individual henceforth was to be his own lord and master, guided by his own free will and good pleasure. The train of life was to rush forward even more rapidly than heretofore, but no longer bound to follow the track of the divine commandments. Now listen to what he said here again. Man was to be his own lord and master, guided by his own free will, and good pleasure. That is the first sentence of the Obergefell marriage decision in 2015 that said the Constitution promises a liberty to all within its reach to certain rights within a lawful realm to define and express their identity. 
There is no givenness to anything in the cosmos anymore apart from things like gravity, let's say, or entropy, or, uh, centrifugal force, you know, those mechanical laws of nature. But when it comes to human nature, it is a repudiation of everything we talked about that, that Blackstone was talking about. We are our own Lord and Master. So essentially what I would say to you, friends, is that without your notice, the French Revolution came and was consummated in the United States on June 26, 2015, in the Obergefell decision, and we didn't notice it because nobody stormed the Bastille, although now we're killing each other off in the streets, sort of like uh, happened in the French Revolution when even Robespierre was put under the guillotine. So, so in essence, friends, we live in a new epoch that is aggressively anti-religious. The poison of the French Revolution's rebellion against God and the liberation of man from all things has spread to America, and that's where we are. If we don't understand that, we will never effect the cure that's needed. Now, another thing that I mentioned last week that I think merits some clarification, and I can already tell by the stopwatch here in front of me, I'm not going to get to all of this today, and I'll be picking up on it again next week. But let me, let me lay it out and get into the first part of the two parts that, uh, that I, I want to cover and clarify. Last week, I mentioned saving faith, and I summarily drew a distinction between saving faith and faith as a matter of reasoning upon which facts are used to determine probabilities. Now, I know I didn't say it that way, and I'm trying to say it a little more clearly, but I distinguish between saving faith and mere faith that in essence is based on reason. And reason is, is a method of thinking in which we take certain facts and from them we reach conclusions. And so uh, an example that was given by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, years ago in his congregation in England was that we say, well, we use faith all the time. We get on the train because we have faith that it's going to take us from Brighton to London. And he said, but that's not faith, and that's not saving faith. He said, that's just looking at the fact that that train runs every day two and three times, and has for years, and it's never had an accident. So based upon mathematical probabilities, I can get on the train, and I'll get from Brighton to London. That's not really even faith. It's recognizing statistical probabilities and being willing to act on the basis of them. But here's what happens. When saving faith is conflated with man's reasoning himself to God, we have arrived at subjective theology because we've put God in the dock and subjected God to our human reason. As a member of my family has often said, well, you know, Christianity is fine, but you can't leave your brain outside the church. And, and Christianity does not require you to leave your brain at the church. In fact, it requires more brains than most atheists are willing to employ because they actually hate God. And to employ their reasoning at a fuller level uh, would create all kinds of conundrums and problems for them they'd rather summarily dismiss. But saving faith is a work of God. And here is why we cannot expect men to reason themselves 
to God. Look, for example, at Isaiah 55, 7 through 9. There the prophet writes, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The nature of God is to have mercy and to pardon, because God is love. But the unrighteous man loves his thoughts and his ways more than God. And here's what happens. Here's the next part of this. For, here's why you must turn away from your thoughts, turn away from your ways. For my thoughts, God said, are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, said the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You're living in the wrong cosmos if you think human thoughts are on a parallel or, or intersect of their own volition with God who is infinite and eternal. So this subjective theology equates faith in what is reasonable to us, to man, an egocentric theology with saving faith. And that changes the way Christians do things. Well, I think I'm just gonna stop here. Rather than get into the two ways that we need to consider how subjective theology changes things. And I hope you will join me for that next week. We're going to look at how it changes the way we operate in the church. It actually changes the very nature of the gospel that we proclaim, which I would submit is not even the gospel. And secondly, it changes the way we do politics and how we evaluate matters of public policy. And those are the two things I want to come back to next week, and I hope you will join me for that episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.factennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.